0: The reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 22, and can be found on page 1011 in the Church Bibles and 1618 in the large print. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, "'Don't go into the village.' Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "'Who do people say that I am?' They replied, "'Some say John the Baptist. "'Others say Elijah.' And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: everybody and uh, Valerie thank you very much for doing that incredibly long reading. Um, today I'm going to be looking at the transfiguration the moment that like Superman in the clip that we've just seen Jesus reveals his true identity to three of his disciples and I asked Valerie to read from Mark 8:22 because I believe that when Mark wrote this gospel he intended these passages to be read together. And that by looking at them together, I think we get a better understanding of the context and the purpose that we're supposed to understand of this event. And I would like to suggest that the story of Jesus healing the sight of the blind man is deliberately placed at the start of this sequence. Because it so beautifully illustrates the position the disciples find themselves in. Mark tells us that when Jesus prays for the blind man, initially he only receives a partial healing He begins to be able to see, but what exactly he sees is still unclear to him. The story of the blind man is directly followed by Peter's declaration of faith. And this declaration marks a significant moment of breakthrough. But like the blind man in the previous passage, the restoration of Peter's sight is only partial. Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's great news, But his understanding of who the Messiah is and what he's come to do is somewhat blurred by his own preconceptions and expectations. And we know this because in the subsequent paragraph, Jesus teaches the disciples that he must undergo great suffering, be rejected and be killed. And Peter takes him aside to rebuke him. So let's have a little think about that. Peter takes the Lord of Lords the king of kings, aside to rebuke him. Do you think he truly understood who he was speaking to? Peter's unhappy with Jesus' plan because it doesn't fit in with his expectations and preconceptions. And when he gives Jesus the title Messiah in the previous passage, in his mind, he's speaking of the one who, like King David before him, would restore Israel's fortunes by overthrowing their oppressors, and taking back their land. He is acknowledging a military Messiah who will put Israel back on the map again, big time. Peter does not understand that this Messiah's mission is not to defeat Rome and the nations, but to defeat sin and death, and that his role is not that of a military Messiah, but of a suffering servant and a sacrificial lamb. So when Jesus suggests that they march into what looks like a deliberate defeat, Peter feels compelled to step in. Because think about it from his point of view. How can they hope to be on the winning side if their leader is killed? Like the blind man in the previous story, at this point, Peter's sight has definitely improved. He does see in part, but God's kingdom perspective has yet to come into sharp focus. So Jesus gathers everybody around in order to reiterate his mission. He states as plainly as he can that not only will he suffer, but those who choose to follow him can expect to suffer too. About a week after Peter's declaration, Jesus invites Peter, James and John to join him as he heads up a mountain to pray. And little do they know what an unusual prayer meeting this is going to be. On arrival at the top of the mountain, a series of extraordinary events start to unfold. And from the same, the version of the same story in Luke, we know that event, extraordinary event number one, occurs as Jesus starts praying. His appearance, the appearance of his face, of his face changes, and his clothes become dazzling white, white. Up until this point, although Jesus has given numerous clues, he hasn't overtly disclosed his divine identity to anyone, but as he prays, like Clark Kent opening his shirt to reveal that he is Superman, Jesus reveals that hidden in his humanity is his divinity, and he allows these highly favoured men to glimpse his glory. It's as if the curtain of the Holy of Holies, which separated God from his people, is being pulled aside so the disciples can have a sneak peek at the one who is covered in light, spoken of in Psalm 104. O Lord my God, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. The disciples are still dazzled by extraordinary event number one when extraordinary event number two evolves. Transfixed as they are by what they see, Peter, James, and John become aware that they're not alone. Two of Israel's most venerated heroes, Elijah and Moses, appear to be chatting with Jesus. And these aren't just random Old Testament characters picked because they happen to be available when Jesus wanted to have a chat. They are on the mountaintop, representing two ways that God communicated with his people up until this point. Elijah, the prophet and miracle worker who never had to face death, was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, is on the mountaintop representing the prophets. And because Malachi had prophesied, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great day of the Lord comes, he's also acting as a sign of the arrival of the Messiah, and the restoration of the promised land. And Moses, the one who led Israel out of slavery and gave her the law, is on the mountaintop as the representative of the law and and the tradition. I want to tell you a little aside at this point, which Becky pointed out to me, that it must have been an amazing thing for Moses to be standing there, because if you remember, when he was leading Um, Israel, he wasn't allowed into the promised land so this is the moment at which he sees the promised land presumably for the first time while they're on the mountaintop luke tells us that jesus elijah and moses are discussing what lies ahead unlike the disciples moses and elijah understand what jesus is about to do and why he's going to do it because their vision is not impaired by false expectations. So they're not trying to deter Jesus from this path, but they're there to support and encourage him. And I guess this shouldn't be surprising to us, as after all, Jesus and his mission fulfill all they have spoken of. In the middle of this very surreal event, Peter who is obviously loving the mountaintop moment and wanting to show support for the battle leaders, tries once again to take control of the situation and blurts out a suggestion that he build some um, shelters so Elijah and Moses can have a sleepover. Matthew tells us that it is at this point that extraordinary event number three happens. While Peter is still speaking, before anybody's had a chance to respond to his rather odd suggestion... A bright cloud descends on them, and the voice of the Lord interrupts him. As if a rug has been pulled from under their feet, all three disciples in unison fall flat face down on the floor. Because this is the cloud of the Lord's presence that they've read about in Scripture. It's the same cloud that has guided Israel in the desert during the Exodus. The same cloud that fills the tent of meeting when Moses goes in to speak with God. The same cloud that fills both the tabernacle and then the temple at their inaugurations. And most poignantly, is the same cloud that's been conspicuously missing from Israel for centuries. No wonder they fall flat on their face in terror. Who wouldn't? Finally, having caught their attention, what does God choose to say? This is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased listen to him. He certainly made that clear. When the disciples come to themselves again, they are finding themselves once again alone with Jesus. The question is, after that confirmation about who Jesus is and what his mission looks like, will they now get with the program? Will they really listen to him? See up until the arrival of Christ the disciples have been taught that if they want to know what God's will is in any situation they should turn to the law and the prophets but what they now need to understand is that they have God incarnate with them and they need to listen to him the disciples have heard the truth with both a verbal and a visual megaphone but I'm pray- afraid the penny has yet to drop It really isn't that they're not fully committed to following God. They've given up everything just to do that. It's just that the luggage that they're carrying is blocking their view. They cannot see who it is who is standing in front of them because their vision is blocked by their preconceptions as to what the Messiah should look like. And they cannot hear what is being said to them because it doesn't fit in with their expectations of what this second exodus should look like. Therefore, rather than recognising Jesus and following him, they keep trying to get Jesus to conform to and to back their vision. The disciples aren't going to be able to see clearly or be used by God until they're willing to let go of their preconceptions, let go of the traditions they've grown comfortable with and abandon the future they've dreamed of and even longed for. The importance of listening to God and letting go of the familiar is not a new teaching. In order to follow God in the Exodus, Israel had to let go of all they had known, all they were familiar with, and to set off into the unknown with no travel agenda, no map, no guarantee of a happy ever after ending. And they had to remain vigilant at all times, watching out for a move of the cloud of God's presence by day or his column of fire by night, because our God, is always on the move. Just because his presence rests in one place on the Monday, that is no guarantee that you'll still be there on the Thursday. During their season in the desert, God trained Israel to be vigilant and to expect the unexpected. But in time, Israel stopped relying on the Lord and instead became devoted to her tradition. They built a temple and practiced their rites. But once God's presence could no longer be found in in it, they failed to look elsewhere for his presence, believing that God's presence was once in the Jerusalem temple and therefore would always be there. That's why when the disciples are with Jesus, the new temple, they are blind to his presence. Scripture in its entirety teaches us that those who wish to be used by God need to train themselves to recognize his presence to be attentive to his voice and to be willing to follow him no matter where he may lead or what it might cost. And yet scripture also teaches us how easy it is to let our expectations and aspirations block our view of God and his plan for our lives. And that's just as true for us today. I remember uh, a few years ago when I had worked for Sorok dance franchise company for 10 years and I felt God telling me it was time to move on so I handed in my notice and awaited further instructions. I knew it was time to move on but I wasn't quite sure what I was moving on to. I had in my mind that I would take a managerial job in the city but I didn't know where or when so I looked through thousands and thousands of adverts After three months of looking through all those job adverts without even applying for one, I was getting to the end of my tether. I had cabin fever and I needed to get out and do something before I exploded. And this wasn't good for me and it wasn't good for my long-suffering husband James either. We had a week's holiday in France which was bliss and uh, then we were coming back on the train and I was on a big sulk. Uh, James decided it would be a good opportunity to interrogate me, I mean, to coach me. He wanted to know how I was going to progress the situation. After a, a lengthy and rather tense discussion, he asked me, regardless of what career you might be interested in, what actually motivates you? What excites you? Well, I didn't need to think about that very long. My church, I love my church. Well, James said, Why don't you work for a church then i raised my eyebrows and let out a deep sigh explaining that it wasn't as easy as that i wasn't interested in working for any old church i was only interested in working for our church and the problem was that the only job they had available was an incredibly junior job which i was very much overqualified for i had thought about applying for it before but i had dismissed it as i didn't want to take a backward step in my career And even if it was a me-shaped job, it would be a huge risk, because I love my church, and I was great friends with the person leading it. What if I started working there, and then we fell out? That would ruin everything. Well, James said, I think you should reconsider. If that's what God put on your heart, maybe that's what you should be doing. I could see he had a point, but this job does not fit my expectations, I remember (laughs) stridently asserting that the only way I would ever consider going for that job would be if, number one, the leader of the church approached me and asked me to take it, and number two, if I was allowed to take it on in a temporary basis for, say, three months or something, so it wouldn't be awkward if I had to leave when it didn't work out. And that, I assured him, would never happen. So let's drop the subject. For the rest of the icy journey, we travelled in silence, When we got home later that afternoon, we found a message on our answering machine from our church leader. He said he'd been praying and he felt that God had told him I was the right person for the position. And before you stop listening or say no, he went on to say, if it doesn't have to be a long-term commitment, you can come and try it out and see how it works. If after six months you don't feel it's right, you can leave. So I took the job and I was promoted within three months to my dream job. But the reality is I could have taken the job three months earlier when it had first been advertised. I needn't have been going stir-crazy at home. But I failed to listen to God's promptings because they didn't fit in with my expectations. During those three months, I had genuinely been asking God constantly for his guidance. But I failed to recognize it when he gave it because it wasn't the answer I was anticipating. And as a result, I nearly missed out on my calling. When I reflect on the Transfiguration, I'm reminded not only of God's glory, but also of how vital it is to make sure we're really listening to God's voice, not just relying on the law or tradition. If we look at the experience of God's people throughout history, I'm struck by the fact that almost every time there's a move of the Spirit and God speaks through someone new, they are persecuted not only by the believers, non-believers, but also by the well-intentioned religious. That was true for the prophets in the Old Testament, for John the Baptist, for the disciples, for Calvin, for Luther, for Wesley, for Wimber, and of course, most disturbing, for Jesus himself. It's so easy for us as believers to start off on the right place, on the right path, but to settle in and learn to stick with the comfortable and familiar rather than learning to accept the uncomfortable process of following God's guidance. And so my prayer for myself and for us as a church is that we would always be followers of Jesus himself, not of a religion. And that for that, we need to be willing to let go of our preconceptions and expectations and be prepared to step out of our comfort zones and into the unfamiliar and uncomfortable. I want to learn to say, here I am, Send me, without going on to instruct God where exactly he can send me and when, as is my habit. When Jesus first prayed for the blind man, his sight was only partially healed. But Jesus didn't give up on him. He persisted in prayer until he had 20-20 vision. And neither did Jesus give up on the disciples He continued to believe in them, to pray for them, and to teach them until the penny finally dropped when they saw their resurrected king. And the same holds true for us. Even though we may sometimes miss his presence, he doesn't give up on us. Our God is a persistent and loving God who offers 2020 vision to all who ask and eagerly desire it. So let's eagerly desire it. Let's pray. But we just want to confess to you that we are fallible, and there have been times when we know where we have got it wrong, but we pray that you would really help us to see what you're doing, what your calling is for each of us, and where we have blind spots and blinkers. Please, Lord, would you point them out to us? Because being able to be in your presence and follow your spirit is without doubt the most exciting thing we could do, the most fulfilling mission we could ever take.